Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Well, last week I gave some homework, 12 Ways to Preserve Christian Unity. And our lesson today really continues that idea of Christian unity, because we're going to be talking about Christian unity, liberty, and love. Now, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and Paul covers this whole topic in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and the first verse in 11, but also in Romans 14. Now, he also covers this in Galatians as well, and in the letter to the Colossians. But we're focusing on this first section in 1 Corinthians 8. I want you to turn there. We're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through and including verse 13. Again, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 13. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. King James Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Much more important knowledge there, isn't it? Therefore, concerning the things, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, notice it's lowercase, we're talking about people who are masters and people who are rulers, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, Paul begins this section with the words now concerning. And as you're aware, Paul is responding to two things. Number one, he's heard that there were some issues in Corinth, right? He heard from Chloe and Chloe's people, Number one. And number two, there were letters. And Paul received these letters, and there were issues that the Corinthians told him about. So this is one of the key things. And the whole letter to the both Corinthian letters that we have are framed in that, in that framework. Now, he's talking about things sacrificed to idols. And what does that mean? You know, when he's talking about these things sacrificed to idols, you Bible scholars out there, help us. Edify the class. What, what is he talking about? 
I saw that hand. Did you want to answer? No. Oh, I see. You're waving to your wife. Okay. You almost bought the Van Gogh for you know, $2 million. A false religion ritual, yeah. Okay. What else? Fill in the historic gaps here. Say it again. Yes. Paul says concerning this thing sacrificed to idols, the meat sacrificed to idols. What's the issue here? What's the historic background? What was happening in Corinth that Paul had to write this? False worship, right? So you had these temples. You had the temple of Aphrodite on top of the hill, the temple of Apollos at the bottom of the hill, and people would offer these sacrifices generally of meat, but also of vegetables, and they would give them to the priests. The priests would burn half of, one-third of it, one-third they would keep as payment for themselves, and one-third the worshiper would use in their meals. Now, the priests had more than enough uh, of their own meat, and what they would do is they would take some of this meat that was burned or cooked, just like you see this nice piece of steak there with a nice crosshatch grill marks. You're an expert grill master. I'm sure you do that all the time when you're offering burnt sacrifices to your family, right? Yeah. So, okay. So this came into the marketplace and people could see that this meat had been already cooked. And this was a way of the priests to make money and they would sell it and it would be at a great cost. So you would go to your local ruler foods out in Corinth you would go to your local Walmart and you would see a special segment that would say special today and you would see these meats all obviously cooked and they had these nice crosshatch grill marks and if you felt comfortable doing this you would buy it bring it home now so this would accompany all sorts of things it would accompany drunkenness wild music orgies prostitution and gluttony Dan. I, yeah, Dan is saying if it were like the meat that was offered according to Levitical law, it would have to be a very good quality meat. Yeah, it was prime meat. Now, I don't know what the stipulations were in Corinth, but it was cheap protein. And so people would feel free to go to this marketplace and get this meat. Now, they weren't being called to dinner because the fire alarm, you know, the smoke alarm was clanging. They were being called to dinner because they had this cheap source of protein. So, what does this have to do with the 21st century? Why did God in his wisdom talk about meat sacrificed to idols and false gods and false worship in the first century? Why is it appropriate for us to even be talking about this today? Yes? Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> there is a correlation to things today that we might engage in which might be troubling to one but not troubling to another. God in his wisdom has this timeless an efficacious piece of his wisdom 
for us for today, and it is appropriate. Now, the wider issue of Christian liberty and freedom is an issue which pops up in every generation. Paul goes on to say, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, Christianity, the scriptures, the Judeo-Christian historical theology would say that an idol is nothing. There is no God but one. We don't need to worry about that. What was offered to the idol isn't anything. You can eat it if you want. It doesn't make a bit of difference. It doesn't matter. When you're in Christ, you are free from these things. And you think about the passages in 1 Corinthians 8, talking about we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. Verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 8, food will not commend us to God. Verse 19, is a thing sacrificed to an idol anything? No. 1 Corinthians 8, 23, all things are lawful. Romans 4, verse 20, indeed, all things are clean. And even in Romans, in Mark 7, Jesus declared all things clean when he talked about food entering the mouth and being eliminated from the body. It's what's from the heart that defiles a man. Acts 10, you remember, God gave Peter this vision of animals, all different types of animals. And while there was the primary correlation to the Gentiles, and he was not to consider the Gentiles unclean, that he should not go to them, that he should not share the gospel with them, there was also an ancillary principle, and that was that all food had been made clean. He had given us all things freely to enjoy. And then even in the council in Jerusalem, Acts 15, you'll remember that there was a stipulation that they should avoid things that were sacrificed to idols. Now that was not because of dietary or ceremonial law, which had been fulfilled in Christ, but it was specifically for the very purpose that Paul is talking about here in the letter to the Corinthians. Now knowledge, we all have knowledge, and today knowledge is corrupt in the modern mind. You know that there, we are in an age of postmodern anti-realism. There are people in the American society who argue that what we're talking about is not even real. What we experience is not real. Morality, statements about what is right and wrong, are simply human constructs that are tied to time. You also know that we are living in an age of moral relativism moral relativism. Although most people we know do not actually hold to anti-realism, it's filtered down into a culture of moral relativism. In 1970, 80% of Americans believe that premarital sex is wrong. The fact that we are in an age of moral relativism is reflected by the fact that in 2010, only 20% believe that premarital sex was wrong. Okay? We're also in an age of therapeutic universalism. In our day, the natural mind has adopted a worldview that espouses the motto, you're either in therapy or you're in denial. <laughs> you're either in therapy or you're in denial. And it ain't a river in Egypt, okay? All right? The idea is that our basic problems can be solved by therapy and basically blaming your mother or, you know, you didn't, you weren't, given enough sweets as a child. I don't know. The fourth concept within our society is rational or radical pluralism. In radical pluralism, it's just a fact. There are people with a plurality of worldviews around us. 
Pluralism is also an ideology, suggesting that there is not one worldview that can be correct. So that if you come at me with your Christian worldview and I am a secularist, a humanist, I'm a worldling, I am going to automatically reject it because of these four principles. And there's one more. Managerial pragmatism. We live in the midst of a people who genuinely believe that all problems can be managed. Many by pharmaceutical means. The goal here is to not solve problems so much as to manage them through procedural democracy. And this is the culture we live in. The culture the Corinthians lived in, you remember, was a culture that had the elevation of knowledge, gnosis, right? And you had these Greek philosophers that lived right down the road in Athens, and their thinking was permeating the culture. And so Christians coming out of that were affected in their mind, in their thinking, in their behavior, by the thinking and philosophies of the day. We, too, are affected by these things. Paul continues, and he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This picture is a description, a depiction of the, the irrationality of today's thinking. If you look at this, and if it's clear enough from the slide, and I don't know if it is, it ends up with a multitude of no absolutes. That's the modern thinking. And this thinking can permeate our own minds as well. Paul continues and says, knowledge puffs up, but loves edifies. We as Christ people are to be committed to the renewing of the mind. We are committed to not be conformed to the thinking of the world. And we're called to be aware of how that thinking affects us. Our thinking is affected primarily by the fall of man into sin. The science of knowing is called epistemology. And we know that our thinking has been affected by the fall. Those effects are called the noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic effects of the fall. So, in the garden, you see this. In the garden, Adam and Eve's thinking was affected. What are some of the evidences that the fall into sin, the rebellion against God and his principles, his character, his person, affected the thinking of Adam and Eve? Say it again. Covering up their sin, up the, their sin by their own means. What else? How did their thinking about who God was and his character, how was it faulty? Well, they, tried to hide they tried to hide from, from an omniscient God. <laughs> the all-seeing God. What else? Blame game. Yes, they started blaming God. All right? Their thinking was immediately fallen. God, for the protection of his character, even judges our mind in such a way that he gives us over to ignorance and falsehood. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. That's a judgment from God. Our reason, our unsaved, unsanctified, unredeemed reason is now opposed to God. What does 1 Corinthians 2.14 say? The natural man what? Natural man does not accept the things, right? And he cannot, right? Because they are spiritually discerned. Now that doesn't mean that our unsaved friends, neighbors, relatives don't know anything. Does it? There's common grace, right? And God enables incredible 
accomplishments by those who are not his children. But there's also the problem that Calvin points out that Satan wants to confuse our thinking. Intellectual pride corrupts our thinking within the fellowship. And that's why Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so you see a little picture here of a puffer fish. And he gets scared or he gets threatened. All of a sudden he blows himself up and his spines come out. You better not get near. And that's a little bit like, uh, like who we are, isn't it? Matter of fact, if uh, you remember our homework lesson from last week, there were some quotes. And one of the quotes said this. Many of us in the church are like porcupines trying to huddle together on a bitter cold night to keep each other warm. But we continually poke and hurt each other the closer we get. <laughs> How do porcupines kiss? Very carefully. Exactly. Right? And that's what happens. You know, the thinking of our still totally not sanctified hearts, our minds, the thinking of the world comes in and it affects us and how we relate to each other. This is an important issue. It's not just about the steak that has the nice crosshatch grill marks. It's about how we relate to each other. How do we express the actual unity that God has created by making us into one people? And that's critically important. Intellectual pride can corrupt this. And it's partial knowledge, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 13, 8 9 says, if there is knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part. Love without knowledge is sentimentality. But knowledge without love is pharisaical arrogance. And that's what Paul's addressing here. So, 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says, not all men have this knowledge. So we have two groups. We have the weak and the strong. The weak and the strong. And so... If someone comes to Christ, he might want to cut himself off from the things that he was associated with previously. You know, you may have had that experience yourself. You came to Christ. Your, your life previously had been involved in debauchery. You had gone out to bars. You had tried to hook up with so many people. You engaged in wild parties. You became a Christian. And you all of a sudden had the call of God upon your heart. The call to holiness and to being separate, right? And so as that happened to you, you did not want to be associated with these things that dragged you down, that were reminders of your sin. And it's the same with the people at the church in Corinth. This is a universal thing. You know, it's interesting that in this passage that we're talking about, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and 11, in the middle of that passage is that verse that we all know, no temptation has come upon you, but such as is, what? Common to man. This is a universal, timeless truth. It ain't just about what happened there on the top of the hill or the bottom of the hill in Corinth. It's about our experience and our experience with each other. So Paul says... I don't want you to be insensitive to people who, are, who have some baggage from their former life that compels them to act in a certain way. So one man has faith that he can eat anything, 
But somebody's faith in weaker, and he only wants to eat vegetables. Well, why? Because he remembers that as he was participating in these rituals in Corinth, he was participating in all these things that he knows that God is opposed to that put him under the wrath of God. And so he doesn't want to be involved in that, and he tries to purge himself from those things. Well, this is critically important. It's critically important for us because you want to develop principles for the exercise of the liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom we have in Christ. Well, there's a question right there. How would you define Christian liberty? What does the scripture mean when the scripture tells us that we are free in Christ? I'm sorry, say it again. It's what you said earlier. Right? Someone might be convicted of, I'll just use an example that I grew up with. Women shouldn't wear pants. Women shouldn't wear pants. How many of you women are wearing pants today? Okay, we want you to come up later and be disciplined, you know, church discipline. <laughs> How many of you sinners have gone to a movie or watched a movie in the last? Any of you have euchre cards in your, in your home? I gave a set to my grandson. I guess I'm under church discipline now. You know, we joke, but how many of you have been in churches where there were rules like that? How many of you went to college where you had to sign a pledge like that? Kim and I did, right? There were rules. There were extra biblical rules. Why were they there? We are free in Christ, but our freedom does not give us license to ignore, to betray, to be insensitive to our brothers and sisters for whom that baggage could be an issue. And so out of love and kindness, we limit our freedom. You know, the church in the Soviet Union believes that if you were really spiritual, you button all the buttons on your coat. And if you're a speaker in the Soviet Union and you're on the podium, you do not cross your legs. That is not spiritual. Right? What are the items of liberty and freedom that we might disagree about today? We talked about movies, cards. Those are pretty much antiquated. We, we don't really wrestle as a church with that in a big scale. Alcohol still is an issue. What else? Smoking. Pardon? Smoking. Smoking. I don't drink, swear, chew, or go out with the girls that do. What, what was that, Ryan? Rick. Yeah, some of the pagan roots of, you know, some people would say that, you know, even wedding rings, you know, have pagan roots. Why do we wear it on this finger of our left hand? Because of, you know, foolish things. Yeah, there are lots of things. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, what about tattoos? Can a Christian have a tattoo? What if your kid wants a tattoo? And all the people who have tattoos are now covering up their... <laughs> I'm not saying anything, Riley. <laughs> but those are areas that we can be really harsh and judge each other on. Yes. Yeah, piercings, body art. Yeah. So, television. John Piper doesn't have a television. Are you more holy than John Piper that you can have a television? 
you know? So, recreation, sports on Sunday, you know? There are two ways to deal with liberty and freedom. There are two ways to deal with it. One is legalist. You simply make rules. And you make rules where the scripture doesn't make rules. And you superimpose a standard upon people for the good purpose of encouraging holiness, right? And for the good purpose of not offending others. You know, it's a good purpose, but you may be creating a problem within your body. And then there's license. People say, oh, I'm free to do anything I want. Don't even worry about getting close to your liberty because if you fall into sin, don't worry, God will forgive you. So you have two sides, you know, two ditches, one on each side. So the question is, and this is what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on today, some general principles that will help us as we navigate this issue of Christian unity and freedom. What is our liberty in Christ? You know, how do I live in such a way that I honor God, that I show love and respect and deference to my brother or sister who may have issues? You know, I have a brother who doesn't want to go swimming in a co-ed situation. How do I deal with that? Well, let's look at some principles. First, Paul himself very plainly talks about violation of conscience. Will it violate my conscience? Your conscience can only act on what you believe. And if you're a Christian, that's going to be based on your understanding of God's Word, the sermons you've heard, the books you've read. That's, all, that's going to affect your thinking. It's not just the cultural influence on your thinking, but it's also what you do in your Christian disciplines, your time in God's Word. You know, your conscience does not have an independent, divinely authorized belief system. It only reacts to the belief system of our past and what we have been exposed to. So if you come out of a Gentile culture, going back to Corinth, you've got certain things in your mind that make your belief system that will activate your conscience. And so what Paul is saying, look, just ask this question. If I do it, will I violate my conscience? Now, does that mean that I simply feel bad, that I simply feel guilty? No. It means that you will be tempted to sin. So I see someone who may drink alcohol. And this person is a stronger brother. He drinks alcohol. He's not drunk. He's never been drunk. He, you know, stops and he doesn't go to wild parties and he doesn't lose his inhibitions and commit all sorts of sin. Now, if I, coming from my background, where I was raised by violent alcoholic parents, and I keep myself from that because I think that I'm going to engage in those same things, and I see this stronger brother doing this, I might think, well, you know, if he's doing it, and he's a godly man, maybe I can do it as well. And so if I do that, I could be going down a trail that will lead me into the very sins that I sought to avoid. Do I want to violate my conscience? You know, and we need to let each of us work on the conscience. If we begin to ignore our conscience, we will train ourselves to not listen to our conscience, and then our conscience is giving us the right information, but we're betraying that, and it is a sin. John MacArthur talks about a man who is very meticulous in how he followed out the ministry. 
And MacArthur uh, was on a, a series of evangelistic meetings, and he went with this brother, and on Monday, they said, hey, let's go play some golf. And the brother said, no, I, I can't do that. We're in serious warfare here. You know, I, I can't do that. I can't commit myself to playing that. And MacArthur and the rest of his friends said, no, 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 come on, you're, you're fine. Don't, don't worry about it. And he said, no, I can never do that. Well, so he and his song leader and MacArthur's father uh, went out to play golf, and sure enough, this pastor showed up. He showed up, even though he said he couldn't do it. He guess he, I guess he felt he needed to be there as a good host, and he said, I shouldn't be here, but I'm here. And my dad said, first hole, first hole, and they're walking down the fairway, and the guy teeing off, coming the other direction, hit a ball onto their fairway, bounced up, hit the pastor right in the mouth, to which he responded, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Now, by encouraging the man in this liberty, you set him back into legalism for the rest of his life. I mean, he would never believe anything other than that God hit him in the mouth and a, with a golf ball for showing up on Monday. You're better off not to force anybody into a liberty they don't enjoy in their own conscience because if anything goes wrong, they can go deep into legalism. So you have either license or legalism. You have to be careful. Next principle. Will this example help others? You and I, if we are motivated by the love of Christ and the love of his people, are not going to want to destroy anyone. Paul says, let each of us please our neighbor for their edification. What is Matthew 18? We're, in Matthew 18, Jesus warns us about that, doesn't he? What does he warn about the millstone? Do you remember? If anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were cast into the ocean. Yeah. Calvin says, and I think I, do I have that quote on there for you? Nothing is plainer than this, that we should use our freedom if it results in the edification of our neighbor, but if it does not help our neighbor, then we should forego it. Next principle, general principle. Our liberty should never be flaunted. We don't need to exercise our liberty in order to enjoy it. Indeed, Paul elsewhere asks some very penetrating questions for those who insist on exercising their liberty. Does this really build it up? Build up others? Is it liberating you? Or has it begun to enslave you? Has it begun to enslave you? Will it be spiritually profitable? Will it be profitable? Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but what? All things are not profitable. All right? He's saying there's a category of lawful things, but he asks the question, will it be spiritually profitable? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Is it going to contribute to my godliness? Is it going to be my spiritual advantage? I mean, there are so many things in life that fit this. Is sleep a good thing? Sleep is a great thing, right? Does Psalm 127 talk about he gives to his beloved even in their sleep? Yeah. But there's also a proverb about the sluggard and the creaking of the bed. You know, going sleep, an enjoyable thing, a God-given thing. If you're neglecting your family, if you're neglecting, you know, supporting yourself and your household, you know, if you're not in God's word, if you're not you know, disciplining and training your children, 
you know, you're taking your liberty way too far. It's not profitable. It's dominating you. Some people are controlled by alcohol, brewing beer, or an electronic box. There, there are people within our, well, within our culture, within our time, that are young, restless, and reformed, and they spend more time talking about brewing beer than they talk about the nature and the character of God. It dominates their life. It dominates their thinking. You have to ask, you know, is it profitable to me? Is it profitable to me? Am I being controlled and enslaved by something else? Is it fashion? Is it shopping? Am I stepping on your toes? <clears throat> you know, there's got to be some time for all this stuff, but is it dominating our life? So, next very important question. Am I using my freedom to really cover up my sin? Am I using my freedom to really cover up my sin? Yes, we're free in Christ, we can act like free men, but we're not to use our freedom as a covering from evil. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 16. So, I'm free. But am I enjoying my freedom just to indulge in sin? Is it a cloak for my lust? Is it a veil over my evil intent? You know, people can be very quick to say, oh, you know, God's given me this freedom, it's a good thing, and yet it's not something that's causing them to walk in holiness. It's something that's actually manifesting the flesh. 1 Corinthians 8, 14, Paul says very plainly, therefore, beloved, and again, notice how Paul, again, in correcting these errors, is tender with these people. He's firm, but he's tender. And he says, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Is the thing sacrificed to idols anything? No. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So you and I have to be very careful about the use of our liberty, because we could be using it as a covering for our own desire to sin and be in rebellion. Yes, Dan. Can you change that word Justify. Justify, yeah. We could be justifying ourselves. Good point. Here's a wonderful question. Here's a wonderful question. What would Jesus do? It's not a bad question. Yeah. You remember the book In His Steps? where this came from what would Jesus do I mean these things sort of overlap all these principles overlap each other right you know some of them are a little repetitious but you know you can ask would this fit under the lordship of Christ if he would do it it certainly would be a good example to others now what would a person who's a libertarian who wants to give vent to their license, right, and just live the way they want, who claims the name of Christ, how might they respond to this question, what would Jesus do? If they wanted to justify, if they wanted to excuse their behavior,
They would cherry pick, yeah. They would cherry pick. Hey, Jesus hung around with adulterers and sinners and drunkards. and <clears throat> Yeah, but was he defiled by them? You have to ask that question. You know? And we have to be careful of deceiving ourselves because we can do that. Next very important principle. Am I doing this to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10, you know, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. So, two Christians go to a dinner in Corinth. And they had no idea that at this dinner there's going to be this meat sacrificed to idols. And the host is saying, hey, I got a great deal on this. I went down to the temple of Apollos. They're having a great deal on, these, on this ribeye. And I, I got it, grilled it up, you know, heated it up for you guys. Enjoy this. And one brother who came out of idolatry, who came out of all the practices at the temple of Apollos, where there were male prostitutes and orgies and drunkenness and carousing, he came out of that and was wonderfully saved. And he's thinking about everything that was associated there. And he's, he's saying, hey, this, this, this guy's doing it. And there's a stronger Christian with him. And the stronger Christian is absolutely convinced. Idols are nothing. There's no other God. You know, I can eat this and not be defiled by what went over there on the bottom of the hill at the Temple of Apollos. <clears throat> and the weaker brother says, hey, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. this is, I, I can't do this. But what would be the impact if that stronger brother said, hey, host, I appreciate you inviting us. This is wonderful. But I love my brother here. He can't eat this, so we're going to enjoy vegetables together. What would that do? What message could that send? Could it send a message of offense? Yes. But could it also send a message that the love of Christ constrains me? And because I love Christ and I love his people and I love this brother, I'm going to give away some of my freedom because it's not that important to me. It's not as important to me as this brother. That's right. Which leads us to the next question. Does it truly have an evangelistic purpose? Does it have an evangelistic purpose? Now, you may love bowling. You may love going to the shooting range. You know, you may love going out to Tyrone's with your buddies. You know, you may enjoy relaxing after work. And you, we can say to ourselves, this is an evangelistic opportunity for me to spend time, rub elbows with these folks. Does the gospel ever come out? It could have a real evangelistic purpose, but we have to ask ourselves honestly, what's the answer to this question? You know, we can deceive ourselves. We can justify ourselves. Here's another question. Am I being spiritually lazy? Am I just following rules and regulations and not wrestling with things as God has commanded us to do? that we exercise our mind, that we search the scriptures. You know? Am I being spiritually lazy? You know, we need to ask that question because if we fall into legalism or license, in either case, we do not cultivate an intimate, ongoing, continual, deep, meaningful 
relationship with the living Christ by searching his word and listening to his word and praying about these things. Does that make sense? We don't want to be spiritually lazy. God puts these situations in our lives to hone our thinking, to shape our hearts, you know, so that we wrestle with these things and we grow and we mature. Again, as I said, some of these principles are repetitive. I never want to become a stumbling block to another Christian. You know, if somebody sees me using my liberty and they defile their conscience and then I find out that they're off in sin because they watch my example, what pain, what, what suffering am I bringing upon this professed Christian? What shame is that to me in my example? No. We should never be in a place where we seek to please ourselves. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And it's a timeless thing, isn't it? Yeah. You may need, not need to wrestle with whether or not to have a nice piece of London broil or even a pork chop or shrimp. No. But there are other things that you and I are coming in contact with and we need to not please ourselves. Well, Christian liberty doesn't mean that we only welcome brothers and sisters when they comply and conform to our expectations. We need to use the principle that we welcome and not weaponize our relationships. So if there's someone who is a weaker brother or someone who is a stronger brother in an area, we are committed to love the brother or sister. Now, there, it's an easy potential to use God's truth and God's justice as weapons for our own bigotry and narrow-mindedness. We can judge each other harshly. And we are committed to unity and to wrestling with these things. We need to be aware and be wary of the professional weaker brother. There are some brothers and sisters for whom everything is an issue. And they get pleasure out of judging other people and by controlling and being manipulative. You ever notice that Paul never tells the weaker brother to accommodate for the stronger brother? It's always the strong that will change and accommodate for the weak. By the way, when I talk to about the weak people, I'm talking about everybody over here. Don't, don't, don't take it personally, all right? Don't take it personally. Just, just in left and right. Okay. So you weak people over here, <laughs> for those of you who might listen to this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, but I'm pointing to the other side of the, <laughs> of the worship center. <laughs> um, and we need to be careful of that. And if there's a person like that, they need to be loved and they need to be patiently endured and grown. But Paul never puts the burden on the weaker brother. He puts it on the stronger brother. Just keep that in mind. So those people can 
impose their asceticism upon others. And we need to be careful of that. Um, if, I'm, if I'm holy, I'm only going to buy old cars and uh, used clothing and, you know, I'm not going to buy a convertible and drive around in it. Well, if God calls you to that, praise the Lord. Do that. Use your money to, you know. But don't judge another brother who might do the opposite, who God has given riches. The scriptures say that, you know, you, if someone's rich, praise the Lord. But just instruct them to be rich in good works, right? So we have to be aware of imposing our asceticism. And finally, all of us need to rely on the power of the word and the spirit and the sovereignty of God to make changes in not only ourselves but in each other and so if I'm a weaker brother in an area I hope that you will be patient with me and that you'll pray for me and that you won't try to encourage me to do things that are not good for me and might defile my conscience and if you're a weaker brother, I hope that I can be the same towards you. And that's what Christ calls us to. He calls us to use our freedom and our liberty, not for ourselves, but to give glory to him and to be united as a people. Well, any questions, any observations? Yes. Yeah. The, I, I use the term professional weaker brother. Uh, it's related to one of the sources that I've read. The professional weaker brother is one who continually argues against others for the use of their freedom and their liberty and is judgmental um, and has no grace or charity. Uh, does that help? Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, that's an excellent question. What, what is the role of admonition, loving correction? What is the responsibility that we have to address these, these things? And it goes right back. It's a great question. It goes right back to our mutual responsibility to talk about um, how we address one another if someone's falling into a trespass or sin. The Galatians 6 passage, right? Brethren, if any of you are caught in a trespass in a sin, or a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. And so we have the procedure and the heart attitude with which we go about it. And so, yes, that's a, that does not negate, you know, this unity and liberty. So, excellent question. Thank you. Anybody else? Ah, Yes. Excellent question. Yeah. So there's actually a threefold question there. Uh, first is, is this uh, for the brothers and sisters in Christ, number one. Number two, you didn't ask this question, but is it for brothers and sisters who claim to be Christians, but who are exclusivistic 
and who would say that we were not Christians, all right? And then number, the third one would be, is it for people outside of the name and the glory and the purpose and the body of Christ? Um, definitely, number one, yes, for brothers and sisters with whom we have fellowship. Number two, if there are people who are exclusivistic, who say, if you don't use the King James Bible, you're going to hell. You have a tattoo. I'm sorry, we're going to excommunicate you from the church. We're going to treat you like an unbeliever. Yes, those principles are for those as well. And we need to be charitable and patient and gracious. And this last point, rely on the sovereignty of God, the word of God, the spirit of God to affect that person. We shouldn't speak ill of them. You know, we should be gracious with them. With regard to unbelievers, you know, a lot of this a lot of these principles talk about our witness to the outside world. How we relate to each other. You know, how will the world know that Jesus came? How will the world know that Jesus is God in the flesh and was manifested and has power to change the lives of people? By our love for each other. Right? And then thirdly, how we deal with people who are still enslaved and trapped in their sin is important and being gracious. Um, when, I, when I worked for APV Chemical Machinery, I, uh, uh, people knew that I'd never been drunk, I've never been stoned, I've never gone to girly bars. They had it as their mission to get me in those places and get me wasted. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. You know, as much as I had any say over it, it wasn't going to happen. But the first time I, moved, I came to Evansville, I was downtown Evansville. We'd gone out to a dinner at Bernie Little's River House, the seventh floor there. It doesn't exist now, but it was a great place. We had a great meal. Afterwards, um, we got in the, the, uh, the sales rep's car, drove a little bit, then he wanted to stop, and he wanted to go to a girly bar. And I had just been, I just joined this company less than a month ago, after I had been released from a previous company. So here I am, new kid on the block, going to this town, had a nice dinner, we were going to go to GE, and uh, they said, hey, uh, they didn't say anything. All of a sudden I realized I was standing in the middle of the street, Walking toward this place, I realized what they wanted to do. And I said, guys, I've had a great time with you. I've enjoyed dinner. But you need to know, I can't go in here. <laughs> I said, tell you what, I'll grab a taxi. I'll get back to the hotel and meet you in the morning. And those guys all turned around and didn't go in. Now, I'd love to complete that story by saying they all became Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> and we formed a Bible study at church, and it just blew up. And it was amazing. That's not what happened. <laughs> but you set a good example. Well, I tried to set a good example. And I tried to be faithful to, you know, the calling that Christ has given us. But we always have to be mindful of our liberty. Now, I'm not saying anybody is at liberty to go into a girly bar. I just want to make that clear. No. That's sin. That's, that, that, that's, that's lawful, but it ain't profitable. And it is sinful. Do not do that. Um, Yes. So wrestling with the Corinthians wrestled, right? Yeah, it brings out that there was an emphasis in the early church on 
Yeah. Because if, if your Christianity was only you come to a Sunday morning hour or worship for one hour, you leave and you know you do the rest of the things you do. Excellent. Speak, Excellent. You would never have to wrestle with this issue. Yeah. But if you're committed to following Christ, yep. people throughout the week studying them and encouraging other believers, yep. helping them grow, growing yourself, you're going to get to know each other and you're going to have to wrestle. Yeah, Blake is Blake, you bring up an extremely good point that we're going to close on, and that is this. The concept, the mindset, the, the expectation of the early church and believers in the early church that they were of one mind and they were together. And it was not just you run in at the last minute, you run out the door as soon as the preacher says amen. You know, there was a body life which there was an, in which there was an expectation that you would know each other and you would be known. And that was for your good, for your sanctification, for your enjoyment, for your fellowship, for building up the body of Christ and encouraging each other. And that's reflective. And again, today in our isolationist, individualistic, don't tell me what to do, get out of my face, <laughs> American you know, culture, we can be radically different. And we can affect not only each other's, for not only each other, for the good and glory of God, but also the world. Well, let's pray, and we'll join the rest in worshiping, God's, uh, worshiping of God. Father, we thank you uh, for this time. Lord, we pray that we would wrestle with these things, that we would not be lazy, that we would not be lethargic, that we would not be ignorant, but instead you would use these questions, these issues, to help us to not fall into legalism, to not fall into licentiousness but instead we would grow up and be as our Lord Jesus Lord we pray that we would have the mindset of Paul as well who did all things that he would win all men help us to see that our liberty does not have to be used to be enjoyed help us to see how practical and appropriate it is for us to consider and walk these things out in this day and Lord we thank you for the chance to worship with your people sing your praise, to listen to your word. Lord, I pray that it would truly cause us to be motivated and encouraged to love you and follow after you with greater vigor and energy. And we praise you in your son's blessed name. Amen. <laughs>